Romans chapter 7, and I think I'll uh, ask everyone to stand so you can stretch here a little bit. Romans chapter 7, and we'll begin reading at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin was dead, and I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful." For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. Amen. You may be seated. We come once again this morning to this amazing seventh chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And today we're entering into a new section that has been the occasion for much controversy and many differences of opinion even among true Christians. And that controversy has centered particularly around verses 14 through 25. There are three basic positions regarding this passage, and if you've been a Christian for very long or been around Christian circles very long, um, you've surely heard at least one of them. In fact, you've probably heard only one of them. And um, you're probably, if you've heard only one of them, you're probably convinced that that's the right one, at least until you hear something better, which is only right. But what are the three basic views? The first one is that Paul is speaking here of a man who is not yet converted, a non-Christian, someone to whom the commandment has come, but who is still under the law and still under the power of sin. The second view is that Paul is speaking here of the Christian, and not just some Christian, but all Christians. In fact, the Christian at his best, in fact, even he's speaking here even about himself, the Apostle Paul himself, at the time that he's writing Romans 7. The third view is that Paul is speaking here of a Christian who is immature and struggling, and as the saying goes, he is not yet passed into Romans 8. So there's the three views. First of all, the man who's not yet become a Christian, he's, uh, the commandment has come to him, he's still under the law, he's still under the power of sin. 
Secondly, the Christian at his best, even Paul at the time of writing. And thirdly, the Christian who is immature and struggling and hasn't yet passed into Romans 8. Now, with that summary, let me just say a little bit more. The first view that this is a non-Christian was the general view, and I think maybe this is somewhat significant anyway, this is the general view that was held during the first three centuries of church history, right up until the time of Augustine. Augustine lived from 354 to 430. And Augustine himself originally held this view, but then he changed his position during his controversy with the heretic named Pelagius. And in this uh, uh, controversy with Pelagius, he... He took up the second view and argued that these verses referred to a Christian. Now, Pelagius, I'll just say a little bit about Pelagius. He said that it's possible for a man to live a perfect life and never sin at all. In fact, he said there were some people down through history who had lived perfect lives and never committed a single sin. Abel, Enoch, Abraham... I don't know why he thought Abraham needed to be justified by faith if he was had never committed a sin, but that's what he said. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Melchizedek, and there were several others. I didn't copy them all down, but there was a bunch of people that he said had lived without sin, including Mary. And so you see how that if Romans 7 is referring to a Christian at his best, it would totally refute Pelagius. So... Uh, Augustine took that position. I don't know whether he had arrived at that before this controversy with Pelagius or not, but um, Augustine was a great man in many ways, and uh, he had a tremendous influence later on. And uh, when the Puritan, or I mean, when the reformed reformers came along in the 16th century, they followed Augustine in this, and this has been the basic reformed and Puritan position ever since. Uh, interestingly, the first position, that is that Paul is not yet a Christian, has been uh, mainly uh, the more Arminian position on Romans 7. And uh, we'll talk about why that is, hopefully eventually sometime. But uh, in recent years, there have been a good number of Reformed people that have come over to the position that uh, this first position, and that is that it's Paul who... Uh, is is uh, describing a man not yet converted. Um, Martin Lloyd Jones, Robert Raymond, uh, several different ones. But uh, at any rate, <clears throat> the first view that Paul is speaking here of a man who's still under the law. The second view that Paul is speaking here of all Christians, even the Apostle Paul, at the time of writing. Now, just so this won't be totally abstract to you, I'll mention. Uh, this is the view that's taken by J.I. Packer. It's taken by John Piper. Taken by John MacArthur. I mentioned some contemporary names that you're liable to be listening to on the radio. Piper, MacArthur, A.W. Pink. Some of you have read some of his things. Many others. As I said, this is the typical reform view. If you pick up just about any Puritan book dealing with Romans 7... Uh, they'll say that Paul himself was this wretched man. And um, they say that's clear for several reasons, but one is that he's speaking in the first person. He says, I, down through here. And uh, also he's speaking in the present tense. So they say Paul, at the time he was writing Romans, he's describing the, uh, an experience that was part of his life as a Christian. Then there's a third view, and that arose as far as a movement is concerned about a hundred or so years ago, and that is the view that Paul is speaking here about an immature or struggling Christian who's not yet entered into what they call deeper life. And so you could call this a deeper life view or the Keswick view of uh, of Romans 7. Now, people that were involved with Keswick... Uh, uh, years back, you could think of someone like Amy Carmichael came from that background. The Keswick view, um, or what you might call a second work type of view, which is a, 
It's a person starts out struggling along here in Romans 7 and they have some kind of second work in their life and they enter into Romans 8. It's the way it's often described. And they learn how to walk in the Spirit. So those are the three basic views. And we're not going to look at these views in detail today, but I want to make some preliminary observations. First one is this. Anytime true Christians, now I'm not talking about carnal, ungodly, unconverted, I mean false professors, but anytime true Christians um, differ so widely on something, have so varied understanding of a passage, you can be sure that part of what they're saying is true. So that's something we've got to bear in mind. I mean, there needs to be humility as we approach a passage of Scripture. If you've got true Christians taking these three very different positions about a passage, and you know right off that there's there's some aspects of what they're saying that are true to Christian experience. It may not be what Paul is teaching in this passage, but it's something that Christians have experienced. And so uh, we need to have humility and listen uh, to what to what they're saying. <clears throat> there are surely aspects of truth in every one of these views if so many true Christians hold to one or the other of them. So that's the first thing we need to say. Secondly, all of us tend to interpret Scripture in the light of our own experience and not the other way around. So we come to the Bible with our experience and we say, well now, you know, let's suppose you're going through a bad day and you're miserable and defeated and you read Romans 7. You say, wow, that's talking about me. Or uh, you uh, are struggling along and uh, you see something wonderful out of Romans 8 and you begin to walk in it and uh, you say, well, that must be talking, Romans 7 must be talking about somebody that hasn't entered into Romans 8. You see, so we, we interpret Scripture and we have a real tendency to do this in light of our own experience. Also, we're greatly affected by the opinions of those we respect. Uh, or of the particular theological camp or tradition that we have come from. And uh, for example, there's, there's some good reasons why a lot of seminary professors are not too inclined to change their view of Romans 7 because they get into a lot of hot water and they might even lose their job if they started teaching something different than what everybody else teaches in their, in their denomination. Also, if we've believed something very strongly for a long time, it can be very unsettling and uncomfortable and even threatening to be challenged on it. And so um, we really need grace as we approach the Scriptures to, as much as possible to come openly and objectively trying to understand what the context is and what Paul is really saying in the context. You remember Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they, he's talking about the Bereans, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So that's our attitude. That ought to be our attitude as we come to Romans 7. And, uh, so, uh, with that very brief introduction to the three views, um, Lord willing, we'll come back to them in the weeks ahead. But right now, I want us to try to do what I've just talked about, and that is to try to approach uh, the Scriptures as much as possible openly and objectively trying to understand the context and what Paul's really saying. Now, I said at the start that we're entering into a new section. And already the controversy begins because people have different ideas as to where the section starts. Uh, some say this new section starts at verse 13, and others say that it starts at verse 14. Now you say, what does that matter? Well, actually, it matters more than what you might think, and I think we'll see that as we go along. But the question is, does verse 13 belong to the verses that have come before, verses 7 through 12, or does it belong to the verses that come after? And we've already said that it's sort of a transitional verse. And uh, I would admit right off that it's much easier, at least for me, it's much easier in my mind 
to put verse 13 with what comes before than it is to put it with, with what comes after. Why is that? Well, because verse 14 to 25 are all in the present tense. And he starts talking about I and I this and I that. And in our minds, we just put them together in a group and say, well, that's the new, that's a section by itself. That's a unit. But nevertheless, having said that, I think it's very clear logically that verse 13 does in fact go with verse 14 and following. Now, why do I say that? Well, because verse 13 introduces a new question or a new problem. He anticipates a misunderstanding. Now, notice what it is. What is this anticipated misunderstanding? Well, he says, Therefore, did that which is good become death for me? And these words, the cause of, are added. Did that which is good become death for me? In other words, earlier... They said, well, is the law sin? The law must be sin. You said law stirs up sin. And he says, no, the law is not sin. And he proved that in verses 7 to 12. Now they say, well, yeah, the law may not be sin, but the law is death. It may not be sin, but it's death. And he responds to that misunderstanding with the typical thing that he always does. May it never be. God forbid. That's verse 13. Alright? Now we've seen these before, haven't we? In chapters 6 and 7. How many of them have we seen? Anybody remember? Chapter 6 to 7. Well, there's been four of them. What was the first one? All right, chapter 6, verse 1. Let's just go back there. What shall, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. Now here's, an, here's a question, an anticipated misunderstanding. And here's a strong denial. May it never be. Then there's another one down in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. And then there's another one in chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. And then there's another one in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become death for me? May it never be. You see that? Now, just by looking at that right there, we've already learned a great deal about the purpose of verses 14 to 25. Now, how, 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 how does that follow? Well, notice the pattern. Go back to chapter 6 again. Turn back there. Verse 1. Notice the pattern. First of all, the question. The anticipated objection or misunderstanding. And that is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? That's the first thing, the question. Then there's a strong denial. God forbid. May it never be. Then what does He do? He gives a short answer to the question. And the short answer in verse 2 is, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's His whole answer, really, in a nutshell. Now what does He do? Well, He spends verse 3 down to verse 14 expanding upon the short answer. Explaining it. You see that? He begins to say, what do you mean we're dead to sin? And he begins to explain and to, to say what it is, what it means that we've died to sin and that we're alive to God. Okay? Now, you get down to verse 15. What are we, what's the pattern here? Well, we have a, a question. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And what do you have? Strong denial. May it never be. And then what do you have? A short answer. Don't you know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one you obey? And then he, what does he do then? He explains the short answer in the rest of the chapter from verse 17 down to verse 23. He expands upon the short answer and explains it. We used to be slaves to sin. 
But now we're slaves to God and to righteousness. Alright, what did he do in chapter 7? Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? There's the question. May it never be. Strong denial. On the contrary, now he's going to give the short answer. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. There's the short answer. Now what's he going to do? Expand upon and explain the short answer. See that? Everybody following that? And he does that to the end of verse 12. Now here's question number four. What then? In light of what I've been saying, is the law death? Does the law cause death? And then he gives the strong denial. May it never be. And then he gives a short answer. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Now, there's a short answer. Now, what do you suppose he's going to do in verses 14 to 25? He's going to expand upon the short answer and explain what he means by the short answer. And notice, in light of that, what he, how verse 14 starts out. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. He's expanding upon what he's just said in verse 13. For we know that the law is spiritual. And then verse 15, for that which I'm doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. You see, he's... Opening up what he said in the short answer in verse 13, and he's just following right along. There's no break there, you see. He says four, and he goes on and begins to explain what he means and what he said in verse 13. In other words, in, in, uh, in light of all this, this section from verse 14 down to verse 25 is a continuation of what Paul has been saying about the law in verse 13. What's he been saying about the law? He's been saying that the law is good, but it's sin that causes death. That's what he's been saying. And that's what he keeps saying in the rest of the chapter. Notice verse 16, the last verse that we read. He says, If I do the very thing I do not wish, I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. That's the whole point. The law is good. Well, what's the problem then, Paul? The problem is sin. And he goes into great detail showing you the law is spiritual. It's good. But I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. You see, so simple in the context what's going on here. So, he has said in verse 13, his basic answer, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good. But there's a problem in me. Now, when you see the pattern here, really, Romans 6 and 7 ought to come to your mind. There's four questions and four answers. That's all you've got in Romans 6 and Romans 7. And those questions and answers are dealing with the problem that he brought up at the end of chapter 5. And what was that? At the end of 5, he made this statement. He says, the law entered that transgression might increase. That's the first problem statement. And the second thing he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Those two things. Now he's got to deal with that. First one is, somebody's going to say, well, let's just sin all the time that grace might abound all the more. That's chapter 6. And then somebody's going to say, wait a minute, you said that God gave the law so that sin might increase? What in the world are you talking about? You're saying the law is sin? No, he says it's not that the law is sin. The problem is, sin is the problem. And sin takes the commandment and produces death. Well, are you saying the law is death? No, the law is not death. The law doesn't kill of itself. Sin is what kills. That's the whole summary of these two chapters. Now, once you see those four questions and four answers, uh, you can see then... Um, very clearly the basic interpretation of Romans 7. <clears throat> you see, what he's dealing with in Romans 7 
uh, in the last half of Romans 7, all he's doing is expanding on the brief answer that he gave in the, in the last part of verse 13. And really, this whole section is just a commentary on verse 5. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Uh, this whole section is a discussion of that one statement. While we were in the flesh, sinful passions were aroused by the law. That's what we're going to read about. That's what we're going to be looking at in verses 14 to 25. They were aroused in our members to bear fruit for death. Wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from the body of this death. Now, uh, that's the context of this whole thing. And when, whenever I look back over the total setting, it's hard for me to imagine how I ever held the view that I used to hold of Romans 7. And I know in my case what it was is that I never looked at the context. I never, I never concern, concerned myself with the flow, the total setting, Although it did really bother me. I can remember even when I was a young Christian, as I would go through this, I never could figure out why in the world, after he's gone through all this victory in chapter 6, does he go to all this miserable defeat in chapter 7? After the victory, he goes into the defeat. What in the world? How does that make sense? Well, it makes perfect sense if you realize that in chapter 7, he's explaining what it's like to be under the law and why you need to get out of it and why we needed to be set free from the law so that we might serve in newness of the Holy Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, you see. That's his explanation. He's explaining. And so, um, that's the context here. The reason is, is that Romans 7 is not about our need to walk in the Spirit. As the Keswick view says, he's not talking about walking in the Spirit at all. That's not the context at all. And Romans 7 is not about our continuing struggle with sin in the Christian life. That's not the context. He's not even talking about that. Romans 7 is about the law. And it's a vindication of the law. The law is good. But it's also showing why the law can't deliver us. Why it, why it actually, if you're in the flesh, law just stirs up sin and makes it worse. And he's going to give a blow-by-blow account of that in these last verses. That's the context. Why it is that we need to be freed from something good like the law in order to bring forth fruit unto God. You know, this is significant. I used to read this and I used to think, you know, here's a Christian trying to live the Christian life and follow the Lord, and he's failing miserably. Trying to live the Christian life, trying to follow the Lord. That's the categories I'd read this in. What does it say in the passage? This is a guy trying to keep the law. He says, I consent that the law is good. And you go right down through here, and it's always the law, the law. We know that the law is spiritual. I agree with the law, confessing that it's good. I concur with the law of God in the inner man. And uh, making, let's see here. Um, verse 25, with the, with the mind, I myself with my mind, I'm serving the law of God. All the way down through here, it's talking about the law of God. You see, this the orientate. What's he talking about? The law. Well, he's talking about going back to the Ten Commandments and the giving of the law. You see, same thing in Second Corinthians three. He says these tablets of stone, this ministration of death, this ministration of death on tablets of stone, as opposed to what do we have now? The ministration of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is Romans 7. Alright? Let's just look at that chapter 8. I'm trying to get the context here, laboring to establish this. Chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now you remember verse 24, who will set me free? Verse 2 of chapter 8, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. You see that? 
Verse 3 of chapter 8, For what the law could not do, the whole context is the law, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that's verse 14 to 25 of chapter 7, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, what? In order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, Christians who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, <clears throat> um, I hope that gives us a start anyway on looking at this section. Let me just say a couple of things. We'll look very briefly at verse 13. Let me just say a couple of things before we look at that. In saying what I've said today, this You've got to get a hold of this. In saying what I've said today, I'm not saying that true Christians don't have any conflicts with sin. And I'm not saying that true Christians are never defeated by sin. And I'm not saying that true Christians don't ever feel like they're in Romans 7. That's not the question. The question is, what's Paul teaching in Romans 7? And what he's teaching is about the law. And the failure of the law to be able to deliver us and sanctify us and save us and justify us. I mean, all the things the law, far from the law helping you, as long as you're under law, you're going to be a slave to sin. The only way you can ever become free from sin is to get out from under the law and to get out of the realm of the flesh. Alright? But nevertheless, true Christians do experience, and this is part of the reason that this... uh, passage has been interpreted the way it is, especially by those of a Puritan mindset. You're constantly looking within, seeing how you're doing, taking your pulse, seeing whether you're measuring up. Self-examination. Now that can be good to a point, but once that gets to be the dominant note and everything's centered around, how am I failing today? Once you get into that mindset, you're you're going to be miserable. And you'll fit right in with quite a bit of this. Because you're concentrating all the time on the fact that you're failing in some way or another. I mean, you stop and think about it, you can find failure in everything you do as a Christian. I mean, how many of you love God the way you ought to this morning? The way you would have if you were sinlessly perfect. Well, nobody's nobody loved God that way. Well, let's concentrate on that. We could be miserable in 10 or 20 minutes. We could get ourselves miserable. You see, that's not, that's not the mindset of a Christian. It's a matter of, Paul says back there in, in verse 6, he says, we've been released from the law. We serve in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So, and also, I want to say this, I'm not saying, also not saying, that true Christians never have any crisis experiences where they feel like they've entered a new realm of walking in the Spirit. I mean, God does wonderful things, even for mature Christians, sometimes where they feel like they've passed into a whole new walk. But again, that's different than going back and saying that's what Paul's talking about here. He doesn't have he's not in his mind at all to talk about that. He's talking about the law. So, what Paul is teaching here is why the law stirs up sin in those who are still under the law and still in the flesh. Alright, very briefly then, I've spent a lot of time here laying foundations, but we have to do that. Uh, Mona and I were talking about this last night. You know, Paul... In the, we've gone seven chapters now. I mean, I don't know how many times I've got it written down somewhere. Eighty-some times I've spoken out of Romans. We've had one commandment so far. One practical thing so far. Isn't that amazing? In, in all these, I mean, and we're talking about almost seven chapters And the one thing that has been said so far is, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That's the one thing that he's told us to do. In other words, according to God's way of viewing things, you've got to believe some truths before you can start acting on them. 
I mean, he could have just chopped out the first 11 chapters of Romans and just started right in, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Of course, he would have had to cut the word therefore out. Because the therefore is found, that's what everything's founded on those 12 chapters, or 11 chapters that came before. But the Bible could have been shortened down a lot, you know, just forget about that doctrine stuff. But the fact is, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And if you can understand the truth of these things, that's the foundation for being made free. If you think of everything in terms of, you know, God's judging me every day on my performance and am I going to be able to measure up today and he's holding his hand, you know, he's holding me at arm's length because, you know, his love is conditioned on my performance and all that. In other words, if you don't really know about justification, and the blood of Jesus, and you don't really know about regeneration, and you talk about how wretched and wicked and vile your heart is now that you're a Christian, you don't have any concept of the life of Christ in you and what He's done for you, you're going to be miserable. Because those things are not true. God isn't holding us at arm's length. He's accepted us and made us acceptable in Christ. And in Christ, I've entered a whole new realm. I have a new heart. I'm a new person. I don't longer have my sins upon me. I'm no longer under the realm of the law. I'm no longer in the flesh. I'm in the Spirit. All those are truths. There's nothing in there about doing anything. It's just talking about describing to you what's happened. The reality of what's happened. And as you begin to see the truth, and he says the first thing, like I said, the only thing he said to us so far in this whole thing is, is to... Believe the truth about what's happened to you, that you're a new creature, that you're alive from the dead, that you died to sin, you're no longer living there anymore. That's why we take the time, and I, you know, we can't wait for two or three years going through Romans until we get over to 12.1 in order to start applying this. And so we do try to apply it as we go along, because it wouldn't take them that long to read this book. But you do have to remember that even when they read it, I mean, a lot of times there was only one copy in the church. We were talking about that yesterday. Give attention to the reading of Scripture. Well, part of that is because nobody, the public reading of Scripture, because nobody had their own Bible. And can you imagine if you didn't, and see, the thing is, if you don't read it during the week, it's the same as if you don't have your own Bible. Maybe we need to stand up here and read chapters and chapters. But at any rate, They'd get up there, and could you imagine trying to figure out the meaning of Romans 7? You hear it once a week, or once every two months or something. And some guy gets up, and he reads through this, and he's reading to some ex-slave that maybe even be illiterate. They were depending upon God to teach them what was meant in these things. And to open their understanding, that's what we need to do. Okay, well, verse 13 here, just um, a few comments upon it. Therefore, did that which is good become death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. Okay, the objector says, well, the law isn't sin, but the law is death. And Paul says, may it never be. And, you know, it is really easy for us to look at the law and to kind of cringe from it. Because that law is death. It's something evil. (laughs) Well, the law is not death, and the law is not evil, and we've got to get our thinking right on this. Um, Paul even calls it in 2 Corinthians 3 the ministry of death, the giving of the law. But here he's making it clear. He's saying nothing death. There's no death in the law itself. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's something good. And when you think of the person of Christ... Let me just read what he said about the law. This is from Psalm 40. Before he came into the world. And this is is what he says. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. See, all these prophecies about the coming of Christ. And he says, Behold, I come. He's coming into the world. 
And what what's she coming to do? I delight to do Thy will, O my God. Well, he's coming into the world to do God's will, and he delights to do God's will. And then what's he say? Thy law is within my heart. So when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, He comes into this world, and He delights to do God's will, and God's law is in His heart. The law is not death. The law is not sin. There's nothing. Why? Why isn't it? Because He's good. The problem is, is that we're not good. And to us, the law is death. I mean, it produces death because sin takes advantage of it and produces death. Another passage in John 12, uh, this is what the Lord says. He says, <clears throat> He says, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. So God's given me commandments, laws, commandments to obey. And I know that His commandment is death. No, I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So you see, that the law is not death to Him. It's life to Him. The problem's in us. Well, the question then back in Romans 7, why did God give the law and allow sin to do this? Two reasons that Paul brings out here in verse 13. He's already given us a bunch. But he says this, Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin. Alright, so the first reason God gave the law that sin might be exposed. The second reason, By effecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. second reason is that sin might be seen in its true nature. So the two things he mentions here in this verse, he says, God gave the commandment so that sin might be brought out and exposed. Otherwise, it's hidden, you remember. And you don't realize. I mean, we experience that even in the Christian life. You know, I mean, you think you're a pretty good person until you have your first child. You think you're not, you don't think you're real selfish. You know, are you selfish? No, I'm not real selfish. Well, get married. And you'll find out how selfish you are. Oh, you think now I'm doing pretty well. I'm not selfish. Well, then have your first child. You see, you find, you start finding out things that were there all along that you didn't realize. And he says, God gave the law, he gives the law in order to expose it, expose sin, to get it out in the open. We saw last week how deceitful sin is. And so this the law gets it out in the open. And not only does it get it out in the open, but it shows its true nature. It shows how utterly sinful it is because sin is so bad that it can take something good and make it work, make, some, make more sin out of it. We've been looking at that. It takes the law and twists it around and makes death out of it produces more sin out of it. And uh, I think what Paul's saying when he says, on the contrary, there's nothing wrong with the law. On the contrary, I wouldn't have known sin apart from the law. He's saying, not only is there nothing wrong with the law, but it's precisely because the law is so good that it has the effects that it does. Now let me just give one example of this that shows how utterly sinful sin is. What did, what did the first baby ever born grow up to do? First baby ever born, what did he grow up to do? Murder. He murdered. He didn't murder just anybody. He murdered his own brother. So the first baby ever born after Adam and Eve, first baby ever, actually the first baby born by natural birth, grew up to murder his own brother. Now, what does the Bible tell us that he murdered him? You remember? In 1 John, it tells us why he murdered him. You know, he killed Abel. Well, he must have killed Abel because he was a really rotten guy. You know, he's always provoking him and stuff. That's why he killed him. Is that why it was? Let's look at it. 1 John chapter 3. And verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Now he's going to tell us why. Why did he kill him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why he killed him. Why did they kill the Lord Jesus? Because their deeds were evil and he was righteous. In other words, what the law does, the law is good and that's why men break it. Because it is good. See, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying there's nothing wrong with the law. Well, all these things that I've said about law and about law's failure and about how you've got to get out from under the law in order to be delivered from sin, he said, don't get the idea that I'm saying that the law is the problem. The prob- all the law, the, the law fails because it's so good. That's why it fails. And it stirs up sin because it's so good. That sin through the commandment might be seen to be utterly sinful. Well, that's a little bit of the context here of Romans 7.13. Lord willing, next time we'll, we'll go on. And <clears throat> He has given His basic answer to this last objection or misunderstanding. He's given His basic answer in the last half of verse 13. But now He's going to expand upon that basic answer. And He's going to show again how this works. How that the commandment how that, the, how that sin takes a hold of the commandment and stirs up more sin and brings about death. How does it work out in detail? And why would it be? Why would sin have such power? What's the real problem? And his answer is going to be this. He said, I'll tell you why there's such a real problem. If you want to put it in a nutshell, it's because the law is on this plane. The law is spiritual. But I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. If you're in the flesh, if you're not a Christian, you're in a different realm than the law is in terms of actually fulfilling it. You're in the realm of the flesh and the law is in the realm of the Spirit. If you want to really talk about keeping the law, you can only do that as you walk in the Spirit. And in fact, that's what he says is true of Christians. He says the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See again who this man is? He's talking about he's talking about a man who's in the flesh. And the law is spiritual. And you cannot keep the law in the flesh. It's impossible to keep it. The only way you can keep it is by forgetting about it and loving God and walking in the Spirit. And as soon as you do that, you start fulfilling it. That's what he's saying. Well, I don't know whether to open it for questions or not. <laughs> Does anybody have a question at this point? We may uh, may not be able to get into it yet, but if you continue to sit on the back row after today, you're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Unless you've got babies. <laughs> Are there two laws or three laws? How do you mean? Because in uh, 725, it speaks of two laws that don't seem to be the same. Okay. There's, in 8, there seem to be three. There's principles. Sometimes the word law is used like a principle. So there's the law of sin in my members. That's a principle of sin. And sometimes it's hard to tell whether he's talking about the law of God, like a capital L, law of God, or whether he's talking about a principle. The reason that in 8.2 he says the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that's a, a principle, has made me free from the law of sin and death. The reason I take that as referring to the law, capital L, is because in chapter 7 he's, tie, he's talked about the law condemning, bringing, uh, stirring up sin and producing death. You could take it as being a principle there, but I think because he goes right on and says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. 
So you could take it either way. You could say that verse 2 is talking about principles. Both of them are principles. But if it is, then you're talking still about the law, capital L, in the next verse. I don't, does that help any? Sometimes the law means principle. For example, back in chapter 3, he said something like that. He says, so, um, let's, just, let's just read it. Um, verse 27 where then is boasting it is excluded by what kind of law of works no but by a law of faith well see he's playing on the word law but he means that he's using it there in the term in the idea of a principle the principle of faith so uh, you just have to look at the context to know if he's talking about the law of God that was given on Sinai or whether he's talking about a principle. Is it the same word each time in the Well, actually, I think that picture came from Pilgrim's Progress. I don't think there is a passage in the Gospels about stirring up the dust, but that's what he's talking about. Is it? I've never read Pilgrim's Progress in my life. Well, that's, that's the only place I've ever seen that. But Isn't there a passage where he says... Uh, there's a passage about emptying... There's a passage about the, the spirits going out of a man and they come back and find the place swept out and clean and empty. But uh, the, the thing that Dave's referring to there, if you take a room full of dust and start sweeping it, you just stir, stir it all up into a big mess. And that's what the law does with sin. It comes in and stirs it up, sweeps it. Anything else? Well, let's pray once again. Father, we come to You and we just we thank you for your word. Thank you for these amazing things that Paul says about the law and about sin. And we thank you that your word is so true to life, and it portrays so much the reality of the situation. And we're so thankful, Lord, for. Um, the fact that you have made a way that we would be accepted and that our acceptance with you is not based on us but based on what Christ has done. And not only have you accepted us in Christ and justified us, but you've made us new creatures. And we pray you would help us to even today to become what we are, to enter into the reality of what you've done in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.